Thank you very much. I'm your host, Catherine Bradford, and very happy to have you with me. I have uh, been switching around my programming times. Very excited about that because it, it brings me into the home there uh, more often live. So now rather than just broadcasting several shows all at once on Wednesdays, I've spread things out and I'm on the air Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, excuse me, from 2 to 3 p.m. So thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it when uh, those of you that choose to listen live do so. And as always, I would like to invite you to uh, join our show. I know that so often uh, many of you are so intently listening that you don't want to break the rhythm of the conversation with my guest, but please don't feel like you have to sit home quietly holding your thoughts or your questions. If you have any, you can go ahead and give us a call. That would be great. The number here at the studio always remains the same. It's one eight seven seven two three zero three zero six two. In the past several weeks on the, on both the Wellness Road Show and my other show, Dot to Dot, I've had the pleasure of interviewing authors and experts in the field of diet and nutrition. We've heard how to write our way into proper weight and health. We've learned to reach our ideal weight by following a regime of healthy, low-fat meals, as well as tips for how to lose undesired belly fat by incorporating monounsaturated fatty acids, or MUFAs, into each meal of the day. So many opinions. We're all too aware of how the diet industry has taken a firm hold in our society alongside the rising numbers of people who are falling ill to serious and sometimes life-threatening diseases. If you are anything like me, you find yourself more confused than ever, wondering what is the truth. Why is it so the advice we seek from our healthcare professionals seems to be all over the map? How difficult is it to understand the human body? What are its requirements reaching and maintaining overall good health? Today, I'm pleased to welcome to the show nutrition expert Nora Gedadis, author of the newly released book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Empower Your Total Health the Way Evolution Intended and Didn't. Drawing on a personal and professional passion for the optimal body and brain function, Primal Body, Primal Mind is the culmination of 25 years of nutritional research and 12 years of practical experience with clients. Guiding us through the maze of conflicting news about diet and lifestyle, Nora reveals to us why soy is not a health food, how supplements can break our addiction to sugar, why the USDA pyramid is making us fat, why low-fat diets don't work, which proteins are best for our bodies, and how much we really need. Laura Gaudis, I'm going to stumble on that. I'm sorry, Nora. Is it... Last name than my first name, but that's okay. <laughs> is a respected and sought-after expert and teacher in the field of nutrition. She is the recognized. She's recognized by the Nutritional Therapy Association as a certified nutritional therapist, nutritional therapy practitioner, and is board certified in holistic nutrition. She maintains a private practice as a certified nutritional therapist and a board certified neurofeedback specialist in Portland, Oregon. Okay, so here we go. Hi, Nora. How are you? So, so Hi, Catherine. Okay, so it's Nora. It is Nora, yes. And and tell me about, so everyone knows when they when they go to your website and they're reading, let's say your name again, it's Ged? Ged Gaudis. Ged yeah. Gaudis, yeah. As it's you just said, one of those names. It just uh, sort of starts with a G and goes on. And I don't know, you'll find out soon enough, because congratulations to you, you're going to be having your own radio show uh, on Voice America beginning yes, May, May 20th, which is great on Wednesdays. 
Yeah, yes. and, I, and everybody can listen to us both because, uh, you know, we're not at competing times. I'll be on from 10 to 11 a.m. Pacific time. Well, you know, it's so funny. I want to just start off by telling you, as I was reading your book, I felt like I sort of uh, journeyed to the end of the rainbow and found the pot of gold there because, you know, my own personal experience, and I think anyone who would be listening today would certainly agree that we are a mass with uh, conflicting uh, belief systems and uh, you know, just so, um, such conflicting ideas around what is really healthy for us to do that when you find something that you read and you think, yeah, that really makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it's just like a breath of fresh air. And I want to just tell you right away, as I was reading the book, I thought this gal has to have her own radio show <laughs> because there is so much information to be, you know, assimilated through this book. It's just so meaty and so full of such amazing facts. And again, so much science, you know, behind it that, um, that I'm really glad that you are taking this adventure into a more a regular, you know, profile for everyone to listen. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I tried to put everything in the book in bite-sized pieces so people don't choke, you know. Yes, yes. But I, I do understand there's an awful lot there. Yeah, you know, um, it is, but you know, and, and we only have an hour today, and I've got six pages of questions, so we'll just hear and, and tackle it, roll up our well, sleeves, and jump go in. For it, yeah. But you know, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say to start talking uh, today by just saying that if we really honestly look at current statistics, uh, we're in a critical stage here, uh, state in the, in just the United States, especially, but probably in many countries around the world, with regard to. Um, rising levels of disease and illness and and decreasing levels of health foods. I, and I, what I mean by health foods are foods that are available to us that are really, truly healthy for Absolutely us. Absolutely nourishing, yes. Right. And, and As a matter of fact, in order to find some nourishing foods, you practically have to go underground to do it. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I was noticing. And, it's, and one of the things you have in your book, which is so great, is this great reference guide. And before the end of the show, I'm going to give out a couple of, of websites that I think are important for people to go to and maybe uh, start off, too, by giving people your website so they can go look at it while we're on the air together here. That's www.primalbody and then dash primalmind.com. So a, a wonderful website too, Nora. So thank you. So what do we say? You know, I mean, I, I know that, you know, I don't, it's a fact and I don't want to overspend too much time on, on just recognizing that there's a problem, but identifying the problem I think needs to be said and needs to be done. Well, and I, and I, I think it needs to be, um, you know, Yes, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's sort of one of these obvious things we all sort of acknowledge and just sort of, yeah, roll our eyes and, and kind of move on. But I really think it's, it's critical to really sit up and pay attention to the fact that healthcare is collapsing. Right. Because I, I really don't think that we can rely, certainly, on the system that created the problem, you know, to fix it. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I, I think that what's, what's going to happen is, is that as, as the population gets, you know, less and less well, um, you know, the, the healthcare system is simply not going to be able to support that. And I'm not so sure that it ever did, quite right. frankly. Right, right. And so really where the emphasis has to go is, is in a true prevention mode. Right. Which does require a lot of self-responsibility. Right. And I think that's another really important point. You certainly mentioned it in the book, and I think that I, I love to, to go back to this point because I think it needs to be heard over and over again, and that is, in the end, basically, uh, you know, what happens to us and, and what we become and what we are in this life is our responsibility. And, you know, um, 
no one's driving your car through a jack-in-the-box and you know no one is forcing you to sit down on the couch in the evening and eating a whole box right. of cookies or uh, you know, or or whatever it, whatever it happens to be, you yeah. know. And I'm not just targeting people for those right. kinds of habits, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, there's there's enough. I, I guess here's a first question too that might be interesting because you know, what if people admit I'm I'm confused. I don't know right. where, how do I even begin to find the truth. Right, I was about to jump in there because you know I have a great deal of compassion for people I see walking around who are extremely overweight. Yeah, I mean, yes, they may be sitting in front of the TV eating chocolate bonbons or whatever, mm-hmm. but really uh, it's understandable that a, that a great majority of the population is just jaded on this subject mm-hmm. because they're being fed, um, you know, pun intended, I guess, um, yeah. a lot of conflicting information <laughs> right, right. Uh, by it, by, you know, and people have to realize that, that there's a tremendous amount of, of political and economic interest that, that is, that is very determined to keep people looking at you know, what is healthy a certain way. Right. And um, you, you need to follow the money. Yes. And, and if you do that, you realize that you really cannot rely upon mainstream media right. and your mainstream health care providers and that sort of thing to provide you with, with truly accurate information. Right, right, right. And, um, yeah, and so, yeah. you know, that, that's a huge part of the problem. People are, um, people are confused. And, right. and rightfully so. And mm-hmm. and then you have other people who latch on to a particular idea, be it a blood type thing or, a, you know, or one particular type of fat or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever else, mm-hmm. and say, well, here's the answer to it all. Mm-hmm. And if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that my book is so complex is is that it's it, it's a little bit intentional because I I need I want people to understand how complex, you know, the issues are that that impact their health. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's important for people to take an interest in the machine in which they inhabit. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to understand what sort of, uh, what kind of selective pressures established our nutritional requirements over 2.6 million years. You know, what mm-hmm. it is our bodies need in order to function well mm-hmm. and, um, and, and how to nourish that. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't have to be so very complicated. It's just mm-hmm. uh, modern circumstances have made things complicated. Mm-hmm. And many people are starting out on this journey that you and I are talking about today at, at a great disadvantage. Yes. They're struggling with autoimmune. I mean, they're not starting as a blank slate where no. I'm basically healthy. How do I, you know, maintain yes. that or get healthier no, or no. whatever? They're in correct mode, neat, serious correct mode. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, just as an example, and I'll, I'll, I'll just be honest and share some of my personal uh, challenges on the air because I think I'm a perfect example um, and a good springboard to be able to, you know, discuss some of the points of the book, you know, um, in my mid to late 50s, here I am, you know, with blood reports coming back showing, you know, elevated levels of things that shouldn't be elevated uh, under normal, you know, ranges. And again, we can talk about the range. Yeah, we can go mis- into that misnomer point. too, you know, but and along the line, me certainly being who I am, I mean, I've been around the wellness industry for years and alternative wellness, you know, working with uh, nutritionists and naturopaths and, you know, uh, I mean, I haven't been stuck in Western medicine model for a long time, Sure, but nonetheless, here I am, 
like caught, like traumatized because it's like, do I believe my Western medicine doctor who's who's berating me for not taking Lipitor? Oh God! And yeah. yeah, and then or do I go to the naturopath who's putting me on a diet that my body is screaming saying, "Don't eat those foods; they don't make you feel well." Right. And you get bloated like popping fresh doughboy, <laughs> and you know, and and it's legume and all this. Or over here, and the doctor's on wanting to put you know statins in my water. And, you know, um, and then I'm, and then I back away and I'm go, boy, if I only, I really just paid attention to what my body is telling me to eat. And anyone who knows me would say this, and it's not just because I'm a Leo the lion. <laughs> I, I, I want a piece of meat in front of me as much as possible. Right. And the more meat, the better. That makes me happy. I could exist the rest of my life on eating only meat. And, yeah. and that would make me happy. So you can imagine how much I loved your book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Except, you know, my, um, you know, what, what, you know the de- the departure there is that you know I think many of us we have such you know an, an unnatural access to food in in mm-hmm. our modern world mm-hmm. that the tendency is for people to overconsume what they have access to mm-hmm. and you know I don't think that our ancestors had it quite that easy um, mm-hmm. we might gorge ourselves on a you know on on and we, we might feast on a woolly mammoth one day and then and then you know and then starve for another month. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so I do make a case for moderating things like protein intake and not, right. um, not over consuming it, you know, at right. mealtime. Right. I think it's incredibly important though, that our protein sources come from complete sources of protein. In other words, where all the amino acids are present right. that we need in order to do protein synthesis for everything that we need to do, right. um, you yeah. know, physiologically, right. um, and uh, the, the problem with trying to combine non-complete sources like beans and rice or whatever have you is that um, you're having to consume a lot of starch while you're trying to accumulate those amino acids. And in the process, um, you know, complete protein does not necessarily imply protein sufficiency either. Right. So... Um, you know. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned the woolly mammoth, so and it was such a fascinating part of the book that I really think it's it's really the basis of the book and we need to back up a little bit and, and explain to the audience here yeah. uh what we mean by primal mind and primal body. I mean basically, um from an evolutionary standpoint, what you say and, and talk about in the book is that what what has built our functioning system as human beings dietarily was developed, you know, thousands of generations of people ago and it and it hasn't the changes and the requirements haven't changed and the way we've been handling the consumption of foods has changed away from what we really were designed to eat right right so go back and talk you know a little bit about you know um what the you know how as we were developing as human beings and and eating the kinds of foods we were eating uh you know how that worked and what did that look like well, you know, you have to realize that you know you, uh, that for all but five or ten percent of the of the last five hundred thousand years alone, we've really been an ice age, mm-hmm. which leaves somewhat limited options. You know, permafrost certainly leaves limited options, and even in areas of the world during the last uh, series of ice ages that um, uh, that were more temperate, say for instance, Africa was was really being ripped apart by drought and wildfires during that same time period. Mm-hmm. So. You know, we were somewhat limited in in what we were able to procure and, and eat. And um, being as smart and adaptable as we are, of course, you know, and being omnivores, we of course would eat whatever whatever's available to us. Mm-hmm. But you know, the vast majority of of foods consumed by uh, by humans over um, over 
you know, hundreds of thousands of generations, um, you know, has been very, shall we say, low glycemic, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being creatures of the Ice Age, fat to us means survival. Right. And so dietary fat is m- much more, and, and with the understanding or with the, uh, with the discovery of, of leptin, we now understand that fat is much more fundamental uh, to our well-being than, than we ever before could have imagined. Right. And that, um, you know, yes, dietary protein is, is, is certainly a, a big part of the equation, too, from, you know, for usually, typically animal source protein. And the kind of plant foods we would have mostly consumed would have been uh, fibrous, sort of above-ground, um, green leafy and, and, and whatnot plant foods. Mm-hmm. Um, although if you ever take a wild edible plant class, and I've, and I've done these things, I, I really enjoy these uh, you know, sort of primitive survival skills classes and, and wild edible plant classes. And what you understand very quickly is that in the wild, um, the kind of plants we would have had available to us as a species during the earliest parts of our, uh, earlier parts of our evolution, you know, you learn real fast that many of them have toxic compounds in them mm-hmm. that limit their limit your ability to eat very much of them. Mm-hmm. And really, only once we would have developed a universal um, access to fire for for cooking food and that sort mm-hmm. of a thing, which mm-hmm. which you know. By some agreement, was about fifty thousand years ago. We've we've been we've had fire on and off for at least three hundred fifty thousand years, but really, where fire was universally being, you know, finally used for cooking and that sort of a thing. No, really, only about fifty thousand years ago. Wow. And and so, and what you, what you learn when you're doing the wild edible plant thing is that you know the person will tell you, okay, now, you know, this is only good this time of year, and don't eat too much of this. And if you're going to eat this, you've got to cook it really well because cooking tends to neutralize many of these anti-nutrient compounds. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these anti-nutrient compounds still exist in plant foods. Um, we have to realize, too, that, that wild animals, they've got teeth and nails and legs. They can run away. They can attack. They can do a lot of things to protect themselves. On the other hand, plants don't have those things. So what plants instead do is they, is they create toxic compounds that limit our ability, that limit our ability to be able to use them very much as a food source, mm-hmm. and they'll mess with our endocrine system. They'll mess with our hormones. They'll mess um, with all kinds of things. They can even, you know, they can even kill us. Mm-hmm. Some of them. Yes. Um, and so we have to be careful. And many of the plant foods that would have been higher in calories that would have actually, you know, uh, you know, provided some some ample nourishment would have been so perilously high in toxic alkaloids, they just probably would not have been used much at all, like mm-hmm. wild potatoes and wild mm-hmm. legumes and things like that. Mm-hmm. You just sort of learn when you take a wild edible plant class to walk right on by those things because they're so poisonous. Mm-hmm. Now, certain types of wild potatoes, certain times of the year, if they're cooked extremely well, can be used. But, it, you know, let's just say that, it, you know, that, that primitive human would probably not have been having a baked potato with their woolly mammoth steak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. So what I'm hearing you say is is uh, um, most of the diet uh, for most of the the years and generations of people being around has been primarily animal animal meats. Well, animal source animal source foods of all different kinds, right? And you know, not all of it's meat. There's there's eggs, and you know, there you know um, other parts of the animal other than the muscle meat. You know, that would right. have been um, you know they 
very little of anything was ever wasted. And, you know, I'm sorry to say they ate insects, too, and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, and another point you made, which I thought was really interesting, was about everyone has this idea of fruit. You know, oh, there's fruit on the trees. You know, we must be stuck in a catechism class remembering the Garden of Eden. You know? Right. But, uh, I mean, really, fruit back in the old day was probably... Um, not wild fruit, as you said, was extremely fibrous and wasn't very sweet. Yeah, it wasn't very sweet. They, you know, if you go out into the woods and you try to find, you know, you know, wild apples or wild plums, they're very small. Um, mm-hmm. They're very fibrous. Um, they're more tart, you know, than mm-hmm. they, they may be slightly sweet too. But there's a there's a lot more tartness to them, and they would have only been available in a for a very limited time period through, you know, much of the world. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. At any given time, and that's only during the temperate time periods, mm-hmm. you know, when, when we weren't, again, in, you know, in the throes of an ice age. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, fruit was never a major staple for the you know, human diet. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly we would have consumed as much of it as we could get our hands on during times when it was available. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, modern-day fruit is mainly bred for its sweetness, not its nutrition value, not, not its nutrient value. Mm-hmm. And uh, very, very few fruits actually even have any you know, real nutrient content, and, and I think that the benefits are often, oftentimes offset, you know, by the amount of sugar that you're actually getting. And mm-hmm. although fructose is not as glycemic as glucose is in the bloodstream, mm-hmm. fructose is also 20 to 30 times more glycating than mm-hmm. glucose. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm not saying nobody should eat fruit. Right. But what I'm saying is that, it, it, you know, it's, it's not shouldn't be a staple in anybody's diet, and, and I personally limit my own consumption of it, you know, and it's more of a seasonal thing, you know, wow, I, I, love, I love berries, you know, and those mm-hmm. come out in the late summer, and, there you, you know, I'll eat mm-hmm. them when they're available, and then when they're not, you know, I, I tend to not seek them out. Um, mm-hmm. I may indulge in the occasional mango, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, which are wonderful, but, um, but again, I, I don't see uh, fruit as something that it needs to be at the top of anybody's list of what they want to be seeking. Um, mm-hmm. And again, and again, and you know, sort of uh, to summarize this, the, the reasons why we're reviewing this is that what's happening now is that modern diet, uh, even people who are th- who think they're eating well, right? Right. Uh, 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 we're we're putting foods into our body that that is take stressing the body because the body wasn't designed to to uh, survive on those high levels of of substances like carbohydrates for example right. as 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 we we maybe didn't even think about it you know i mean and, right. and you said you know it's a drop in the in the bucket this this period of time the past 50,000 years or so and in the whole time frame of mankind being around that we've sort of become the modern cooking you know manipulating food society that we've done and certainly over the last decades even worse so um that where we come from has us on a diet and a, and a diet for sustaining our body's survival diet that was much different looking than what we've sort of mutated into right right mutated is a good word yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah one thing you have to realize and it's an important fact to remember that our primitive ancestors never had never really had an emergency need, for instance, to lower glucose in their bloodstream. Right. Um, and most people think of, you know, insulin as, as, the, as a sugar-based hormone, you know, is, is a hormone that's designed to lower blood sugar. That's not insulin's biological purpose at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it does that 
by sort of default. Um, and it's sort of a trivial side effect, I guess, of insulin. Insulin will take excess calories out of the bloodstream and, and move them into, um, uh, into the cells either for energy or, or for storage. And that's what it does. And because of all the major macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, the only one for which there is literally no absolute human dietary requirement is carbohydrate. Wow. So virtually every molecule of carbohydrate that we consume is going to go to excess. Everything that we don't need to outrun a charging cantankerous woolly mammoth right now, right. you know, is mostly going to get converted to triglycerides. Some of it will get stored as glycogen. A very small amount of it will get stored as glycogen in the liver and in the muscles and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But all the rest pretty much gets converted to triglycerides and stored as body fat. Mm-hmm. And the textbook of medical biochemistry states point blank that all body fat is made from glucose and mm-hmm. also that insulin is the fat storage hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, but insulin's real job actually has more to do with, you know, the coordination of our energy stores with reproduction lifespan. And that's, that's a whole other part of the book we don't necessarily need to leap to right now. But, right. Um, but it, it has, it, it's the single most important hormone in terms of determining our longevity on the planet. And we need to know that the less of it we produce, the longer we will live and the healthier we will be by far. Right. Well, you said something pretty significant just a second ago, and I think I need to bring it up again because it's pretty remarkable and very different from what a lot of people think about. And maybe we need to define uh, also the subsets of what you mean by carbohydrate because people talk about simple carbohydrates and complex carbohydrates. But, you know, the fact here is what you what I heard you just say is that uh, eating fat doesn't make you fat. Right. Um, It's It's the truth. Eating carbohydrates makes you fat. And, um, and, you know, down the line from that. So when we and, and everything that you eat that the body interprets, uh, that the body converts into excess sugar. I mean, I've done that a million times. I'll walk by and look at my children and I'll say, you know, you may think that's a piece of bread, but I can promise you, your body thinks it's a spoonful of sugar. Right. You know? and, that's and that's I, very well put. Yeah. And, and I'd rather not have you sit here all day long eating sugar, you know, and not bad food choice, you know. Um, and, and it's really tough because, you know, I mean, like we said, we keep going back to being bombarded by misinformation left and right all day long. You well, know? It's an easy enough to misunderstand thing because we tend to think of food in terms of calories. Yeah. But the unfortunate thing about the whole caloric theory is that it presumes that we are somehow, you know, that every molecule of food that we consume is somehow destined to become energy. Right. Well, we're not a, we are not a heat engine. We're right. a chemical factory. Right. And so when we consume food, When we consume protein, for instance, or when we consume fat, a whole lot of that goes to structure. I mean, the you know protein, you know, amino acids rearrange themselves into about fifty thousand different combinations of you know of proteins, you know, in the body for all kinds of things, for maintaining our hair and our skin and our our hormones and our you know, um, you know, our muscles and and a whole lot of other things. And fat, you know, the brain is up to eighty percent fat by dry weight. So our brain and nervous system rely tremendously upon fat, more upon fat than anything else in order to function well. Mm-hmm. You know, in addition to the fact that all of our cellular membranes are made up of fat, um, and fat, we use fat for making hormones, fat for a whole lot of things in the body. So fat is an important part also of our structure and, right. and our function. 
Right. And so it's only whatever is in excess of what we need for maintaining structure and function right. that will be likely to be stored. Right. And, uh, and, and, but, but with fat, if we eat fat, you know, if you eat, say, a stick of butter, actually, a stick of butter is actually a bad example because, uh, you know, so many of the short-chain fats, you know, in butter, we can't really store very, very well as body fat. You know, butyric acid is a short-chain fat that is right. more likely to be burned for energy than it is to be stored. Right. But say we, you know, so we drink a cup of olive oil um, or something like that, or we eat uh, a spoonful of lard, I don't know, whatever people represent in their minds as being, wow, that's really high fat. Um, it doesn't, it, it's not going to go straight to your thighs. In order to be stored as body fat, first, well, first, that lard is going to be absorbed through your lymphatic system, not into your bloodstream. Mm-hmm. So it gets processed through your lymphatic system. It, you know, the fats are extremely important for the functioning of the immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever is in excess of what you absolutely need for your structure and function is going to actually go and get converted first to glucose and then stored as mm-hmm. body fat. Mm-hmm. So it goes, has to go through a very inefficient conversion process to actually get stored. Mm. And um, if you are consuming fat to the exclusion of carbohydrates, chances are you won't do that very much because your body will be dependent on fat as its primary source of fuel. Right. And therefore, you are likely to just burn off most, you know, whatever excess fat that, that you consume very readily. Right. If, on the other hand, you have taught yourself or you've, you've conditioned your body to depend upon carbohydrates, you know, upon um, sugars and starches as your primary source of fuel, as is true of about 98% of our population, Right. then your body will turn to those carbohydrates preferentially for energy because glucose is so damaging to the body uh, and to the blood and to, the, um, to our the arteries and to our organs and to our nervous system that your body is pretty much obsessed with maintaining the lowest possible necessary levels of glucose at any given time. And so your body will look very quickly to get that out of there when we put it in. And it will put fat aside, um, store it however it has to, in order to preferentially burn those carbs first. Right. Um, And so if you conditioned yourself to be a a sugar burner instead of a fat burner, and we're all one of of those two things, um, then what you basically done is you've conditioned your body to expect that sugar is its primary source of fuel. This is one of the big myths. Everybody thinks you have to have blood sugar right. you know, to, to, to do it. Right, right, right. Uh, and that's not true. Right. Um, and, you know, if you look upon, if you look upon food as fuel, um, and you look upon food as, you know, ways, ways of fueling our metabolism, carbohydrates are basically like the kindling. Right. Um, you know, and kindling gets things started fast and hot, but it doesn't burn a very long time. Right. So like the, the proverbial whole, whole grains, you know, the, the, you know, the whole brown rices and the, you know, the whole grains and things like right. that. Right. Those would be the equivalent of like twigs on the fire. Wow. Right. Right. Like potatoes and bread and pasta, which are sort of, you know, either starchier or more processed. That's like throwing paper on the fire. Right. Now, alcohol is like throwing gasoline on the fire. Right. And you're not going to fuel your fire very long in any of those forms of fuel. Right. Fat, on the other hand, it's like putting a nice, great big log on the fire that's going to burn a nice long time. Um, But as long as you're dependent upon sugar for your primary source of fuel, your body will be seeking that. It will become very efficient 
at converting whatever you eat to that form of fuel, including the protein that you eat, including your own, um, uh, including your own, uh, you know, organs and tissue. It will convert right. to sugar if it has to to right. keep that habit going. Right. Uh, which is a major vector for osteoporosis, by the way. And right. you'll find most people with osteoporosis are, are carbivores. <laughs> right. Um, and um, and you're basically a slave to maintaining that metabolic regimen of having to eat constantly. That's why dietitians will say, well, you know, you eat, need to eat something every couple of hours, don't ever skip breakfast, all that sort of thing, because you're a slave to feeding that fire throughout the day. Mm-hmm. If instead you've... You've conditioned your body to depending upon fat for its primary source of fuel. Um, it doesn't take a lot to get the fire burning a very long time, because fat is higher in well, on average, is it higher in calories mm-hmm. uh, per gram than carbohydrate. Although even that's somewhat right. variable. Some of the shorter chain fats are more similar in their caloric um, value to to carbohydrates, and mm-hmm. others are actually. Um, more than nine calories per gram, but you know they average it out mm-hmm. to nine calories per gram. So, um, what about um, in defense of, of complex carbohydrates, and how does the body handle those differently than you know from a from a digestive standpoint or processing standpoint as opposed to the uh, the infamous you know simple sugars or the the right. Well, there are different layers to answering that question, mm-hmm. um, but with complex carbs, what the advantage is is the presence of fiber. Um, in, uh, in most instances, so that that slows the absorption somewhat of the sugar. So you're not slamming yourself so hard with a glycemic reaction. Right. Although not all sugars create glycemic reactions, and sometimes it's more damaging when they don't. Um, but, you know, when you eat something that where your body absorbs the sugar more slowly, you're going to produce less of an insulin response, which is, which is good. But it's still all sugar once it hits your bloodstream. Whether it's whole grain or whether it's refined, it's all sugar once it hits your bloodstream. It's just the rate somewhat at which it's hitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the difference. Um, the other part of the equation is that many of the more uh, complex carbs, the whole grains and things like that, also contain, you know, the trade-off is that they contain high levels of phytic acid, which is a substance that will bind minerals, for instance, and make them unavailable to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you can give yourself a lot of mineral deficiencies eating excessive amounts of, of whole grains. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, many legumes and things like that contain trypsin inhibitors, soy being, of course, the most defensive of them all. But trypsin inhibitors basically uh, interfere with your ability to digest and absorb protein and can be very hard on your pancreas over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, many of these foods also contain goitrogens, which are things that can suppress your thyroid function. Yeah. Uh, and so there are trade-offs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I personally don't consume... Uh, the only complex carbohydrates, and, and, and I do want to make this distinction, because, um, you know, broccoli is a carbohydrate too, but it contains very, very little, I mean, almost negligible amounts of, of any kind of utilizable sugar. It's, broccoli is mostly fiber, you know. So, you know, I, I separate fibrous vegetables from, uh, from the rest of all of this. Um, and fibrous vegetables are something that I probably consume more of than most vegetarians, you know. I think that, I, I, I do think that in modern times, these kinds of plant foods have actually become more important to us um, for a number of reasons, 
mainly for their you know rich anti- and varied antioxidant content because of the kind of world that we live in that's so filled with pollutants and things. Um, plant-based foods, I think, uh, of that nature, leafy greens and the fibers, you know, above-ground vegetables, as you sometimes call it, um, I think have become a lot more important to us now than they ever used to be to our human ancestors. Mm-hmm. So can we, so people don't, you know, start feeling like lost in this conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. with regard to... You know, oh my God, they're saying I can't eat that, I can't eat that. Well, gee, I've been, you know, misled. Then, what? Let's let's target uh, in the next couple of minutes just really some of the big no nos. Um, you know, like really, these are these are foods that not only do you no good, but they really do you harm. Yeah, let's and, let's set up a panic. <laughs> yeah, no, and then we can move into yeah, yeah. you know what are some good alternatives and yeah, and there is talk light about, at the end of the tunnel. That's yeah, not a freight train yeah, here, and that cholesterol isn't a bad guy, and that you know, I mean, there's a lot of there's some bad raps that things some of the foods have gotten, you know. Um, so maybe we can take a look at that too. But I I, I want to give people some real positive ideas of of the do's and the don'ts and the whys, um, you know, without getting really long-winded because, right. unfortunately, we only have an hour here. So Right, well, not, and not and certainly not even that at this point. But, yeah. I, you know, I think if I were to throw it all into a nutshell, um, um, if, if, you know, if something wouldn't have looked like food to somebody wandering around like 40,000 years ago with a loincloth and a spear, chances are it's not food for us now either. And this you know, includes an awful lot of what a lot of people base their modern diets upon. And, you know, the modern diets are based upon these things partly because the powers that be are, are promoting them because they're cheap to produce and, and highly profitable. And therefore, they're promoted as being, you know, the healthiest things we can possibly eat. And the stuff at the base of the food pyramid, you know, that 11 servings of grains per day and legumes and whatever, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a feedlot diet. Um, you know, they feed grains to animals to fatten them up. And, uh, you know, in our culture, we can take a hint from that. Um, so anything, you know, the, again, the agricultural revolution really only took place about 10,000 years ago in ancient Samaria. And, and even as that happened, it's not like instantly everything turned over to agriculture. It was sort of a gradual process of incorporating sort of grain-based foods into, you know, what had been a very hunter-gatherer-based diet for humans. And um, it certainly allowed the, the development of civilization, but, you know, along with that came a lot of the other things that, you know, like overpopulation and, and, uh, and, and, and diseases of sort of modern civilization that came along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and many areas of Europe really didn't start to see the agricultural revolution take place until about 2,000 years ago. We're talking mm-hmm. about a sliver Mm-hmm. You know, in the span of time that humans have actually occupied space on this planet, it, mm-hmm. it's just such a minute sliver of time. Mm-hmm. Most, by most geneticist standards, it really takes anywhere from maybe forty to one hundred thousand years for for a full genetic adaptation to occur to a major change like that. Mm-hmm. And it just hasn't been enough time for right. us. We're just—I don't think any of us on the planet are particularly well suited to the consumption of these foods. The difference is that some humans will tolerate them better than others. Um, and, and you can see the extremes of intolerance, for instance, in the most recently introduced to the agricultural revolution, which are Native American people. And mm-hmm. you can see what grains have done to them. Mm-hmm. If you go to a reservation and you see these, these, these you know, human beings that have been you know, fed a diet based on government guidelines, which put grains at the forefront of absolutely everything, 
you see rampant diabetes, alcoholism, heart disease, cancer, um, you know, basically all obesity, all of the biggest problems of, uh, of modern civilization and, um, and all the emotional discord that goes along with it. Um, and so, um, so a lot of these foods that, uh, you know, when, when you start looking at the post-industrial revolution and the industrialization of the food supply, in other words, the refinement of foods, so, you know, we're not even talking whole grains anymore. Now we're talking stuff right. that comes out of a cardboard box, which our ancestors never would have, in our, their wildest dreams, imagined getting their food out of a cardboard box. Right. And there's no possibility of adapting to that. And, and new frankenfoods are getting created every single day. And, uh, you know, stuff that isn't even showing up in nature but comes out of test tubes. Frankenfoods, um, I had and that's great. And it's impossible to nourish um, a body and a brain on something to which it has no evolutionary basis for adaptation to. Right. And so... And I think, I think I mean, certainly the circle I run with, most people know, and I've heard say over and over again, uh, you know, the further away from its original source it, it goes, the worse it is for you. So try to go back to, you know, natural source, whole foods and things such as that. And then, of course, the raw food, you know, craze as well but well there's that and that's yeah, that's another that's topic. a whole nother yeah. thing yeah but but so what are we what are we coming out with after you know discarding all of the no-nos what kinds of things are left behind well what are left behind again all of us regardless of our ethnic background or our ideologies or anything else we're all 99.99 percent in terms of our genetic expression hunter-gatherers and what that means is that that we need to be obtaining our foods from, uh, we, need, we need some animal source foods. We do. I mean, there are certain nutrients that just simply um, are either best gotten or only exclusively gotten from animal source foods. And, you know, vitamin A, for instance, is not beta carotene. They are not synonymous. They are not the same thing. And it is impossible to meet your daily vitamin A requirement, for instance, from just you know, from sources of beta-carotene. It takes at least six units of beta-carotene to equal one unit of vitamin A. And so um, vitamin A in its true form is only found in animal source foods. Vitamin D in its utilizable form is only found in animal source foods. Uh, vitamin D2, which can be found in plant source foods or sometimes uh, made synthetically, has to be uh, converted by, by the action. Well, the synthetic stuff doesn't do anything but the natural D2 in plant foods has to be converted by a lot of sunlight into active D3. And um, in many areas of the world, and given our modern culture, that doesn't happen very very well at all, even in very sunny areas of the country. Uh, even the sunniest areas of the country, at least 80% of the population is vitamin D deficient. So mm. don't expect to get it from your plant source foods. Yeah. Um, and... You know, and so on and so on. You know, B12 is another one, you know, that everybody kind of knows about. Um, and, and there are many more. But, you know, that being said, it's not that we should all be eating as much meat as we can get our hands on. Really, you know, the, the RDA for protein is somewhere around 44 to 56 grams a day. That really amounts to, when you translate that to a piece of, of meat or fish, about maybe six ounces or so. 
And that's not that much. Mm-hmm. We're talking you know, maybe a couple ounces per meal to meet your basic um, structural and metabolic requirements. Beyond that, any amount of protein you consume beyond that is likely to be converted to sugar, basically, and stored the same way. So you, you see these people with these giant porterhouse steaks on their plate, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and thinking that they're doing a low-carb thing, it's, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's a little bit misleading. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's also this whole uh, other very recent discovery of a new metabolic pathway that I talk about in my book, something called mTOR. Right. Um, where some recent research has sort of revealed that when we consume protein in excess um, of what we need for our basic maintenance and, and repair um, and rebuilding and all that sort of a thing, will upregulate, an abundance of protein upregulates this metabolic pathway that stimulates cellular proliferation, which is all geared, you know, uh, biologically kind of toward reproduction. But as we age and as mutagenic changes start to occur in free radical activity and, and whatnot, um, makes us more vulnerable, for instance, to cancer. Right. Um, and, and this mTOR pathway is actually very closely related to insulin, and insulin is the primary vector. Um, but mTOR, just as insulin serves as our default sort of, as a default sort of sugar sensor, um, and leptin, which we've hardly talked about, but leptin is basically our body's primary fat sensor. Um, mTOR serves is our body's basically protein sensor. And what's what's wonderful about about understanding a little bit about this new metabolic pathway is that if we can keep it downregulated, in other words. If we can keep our protein consumption down to what we need in order to maintain ourselves, um, what gets upregulated instead of cellular proliferation, which may not be desirable, is instead maintenance and repair. Right. And in in that regard, that's kind of what we want. It's a very um, it becomes an anti aging dietary approach. Right. Um, well, and, it, it sounds like one of the things you're saying here. I'm hearing you say is that. Um, uh, no matter what we choose to eat, even if it's the right stuff, what we have to be careful of and mindful of, and we do greatly as a society, is overeat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Way too much. It's not just what we're eating. It's, it's, it's how we're eating it. Right, right. You know, you can be eating the best, you know, most organic, free-range organic diet, but if you're overdoing it, mm-hmm. it's very hard on your digestive system. It's mm-hmm. very hard on your immune system. Um you're not, you know, you can still gain weight, yeah. you know, yeah. and, um, and you know, and you can still mess up your endocrine system. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, what's, what's really interesting about all this is that um, from this sort of concert between looking at our dietary and nutritional requirements from an evolutionary perspective and taking a look at what's going on in modern-day longevity research, if you hybridize those two things, you can come up with a, you know, with a dietary approach that gives you the best of both worlds and, and, um, and, 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 and also actually works really well with our current economic crisis because this is literally the least expensive way uh, to eat optimally well. I think that's probably in existence right now. Mm-hmm. And what the magic formula is, is, you eliminate sugar and starch, in other words, utilizable carbohydrates, um, to the degree that is possible, as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Because we have no actual human dietary requirement for carbohydrate, to, you know, 
and it's carbohydrate that is the primary um, trigger for insulin surges. Right. It's a no-brainer. Right. We just we don't need it. Um, and you moderate your protein intake. You know, a couple ounces per meal really is all anybody absolutely needs, unless you're an elite athlete or you're trying to have a baby or you're you know you're a child that's that's trying to you know grow and develop and all that kind of thing. You might need a slightly higher you know intake, a nutrient intake, because you are trying to grow. Um, uh, and you are trying to fuel, you know, reproductive processes or whatever. Right. But um, otherwise, really, all but the most active people are only going to need, you know, you know, something in the range of, you know, five, six ounces of, of protein a day. And, and um, you know, and beyond that then, that doesn't sound like you're leading a whole lot to eat. But you can eat as many fibrous vegetables as you want, you know, salad, you know, Steamed veggies with you know with butter or whatever or raw veggies, however you like your veggies. Um, so you can get your bulk with that. But the way you satisfy your appetite is with fat. Leptin is the hormone that controls your appetite. Leptin decides whether you need to eat uh, fat. Leptin decides whether you need to burn fat. Um, leptin decides all of these things, and it's constantly looking around to see how much fat is there to figure out whether hunting is good or not. And so when the one food that can satisfy appetite is dietary fat, natural, healthy dietary fat, that includes saturated fats that are naturally present in meats and fish and and, and other things, um, and eggs and butter and whatever, and all the essential fatty acids and the monounsaturates and all that, what we want to avoid, of course, are the artificial fats or the highly processed fats, you know, trans fats, and excess amounts of vegetable oils, which are sort of an unnatural thing. Right. Um, you know, omega-6s are very pro-inflammatory as a general rule, and, and we don't want to over-consume them. Right. We need a certain amount, but we don't want to over-consume them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, you know, if we eat food in its natural state, it will tend to be well-balanced. Mm-hmm. Um if we start eating foods in their refined state, then we start running into problems. Mm-hmm. So you eat as much fat as you need with that meal in order to satisfy your appetite. Mm-hmm. So say, for instance, you have just a little two, three ounces worth of steak, so you know, sliced and set on the side of the plate with, and you can saute a bunch of mushrooms and onions and, and some in butter. Kerrygold <laughs> butter. <huh? laughs> um, and then have Kerrygold butter and a popsicle stick for dessert. Um, <laughs> um, or, and, uh, you know, you can, uh, I'm joking, by the way, but, right, right. Uh, and then, you know, say you have, um, you know, some steamed vegetables, and you have, you know, some melted butter on that, or some olive oil, and then you have a nice salad with some olive oil on that, um, I, I promise you, you will not be hungry. Mm-hmm. And what you're going to find, um, you know, the faster you're able to adapt yourself to utilizing fat rather than carbohydrate as your primary source of fuel, what you're going to find is that you can go a lot of the day without even thinking about eating, and you might at some point get hungry. Mm-hmm. But what you're not going to get is a really cruddy mood mm-hmm. or brain fog or sudden, you know, or fatigue or dizziness um, or, or serious cravings that come with... Um, hypoglycemia. And um, 
when you know by 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 taking on fat as your primary source of fuel, you literally remove blood sugar from the mood and cognitive equation. We do need a certain amount of glucose in our bloodstream, and we can manufacture all of it from a combination of protein and fat in the diet. We don't have to consume any carbohydrates to have that, mm. but we have to have a little glucose in our bloodstream because they are the primary fuel for our red blood cells, and our red blood cells. Um, con- they, they feed anaerobically in order to protect their precious cargo, which is oxygen. I have a quick question, sure. and because we have like three minutes left, it'll have to be a quick answer. But, okay. Um, again, I want to drive people to your website um, to get more information. It'll also talk about your uh, upcoming interviews and your show and stuff that people need to follow. But I oh, want to... Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah okay. I wanna, and I do have one announcement to make, too. So. Yeah, I want to ask, you know... Uh, someone's listening to us today and they're like, okay, I get it. I want to do it. Any downside or risks with going cold turkey off of, uh, you know, from how you've been eating all that's along? An excellent, that's an excellent question. I find actually is for, the mo- for most people it's extremely easy to make that transition, and, and I found that making that transition as cold turkey as possible is the best way to do it. However, in a person who's extremely carbohydrate addicted, it can be problematic. So what you do to get around that you can, you can either use, well, the amino acid glutamine works very, very well for this. You can get it in a powdered form. Your brain can use glutamine in lieu of glucose to fuel your brain so that if you feel like you're getting, hypo, getting into a hypoglycemic funk, say, you know, you're trying to recover from alcoholism or something where you're really addicted to sugar, you really want to have some glutamine around to get yourself through this time period. It can take anywhere from three to six weeks to make that transition metabolically to primary, primarily sugar burning to primarily fat burning. You can use glutamine like bicycle training wheels in the interim in order to just put you know, a scoop of that under your tongue and swill it down with a little bit of water a few times a day or as needed if you feel like you're getting into a blood sugar funk, and it'll get you through. Okay, cool. Many people don't find they need that at all, but some people will, and that's a good thing to know. And gymnema sylvestra is another herb that can help kill carb cravings too and help restore insulin sensitivity, so that's another useful thing. Great. Yeah. Okay, good. Your announcement. Well, my announcement is that um, on June 6th, um, through the uh, Seven Waves of Wellness um, uh, group in, in Portland, I'm, they're going to be Seven Waves of Wellness is going to be sponsoring me in a one-day-long seminar. Awesome. It's going to be given in Lake Oswego at Crown Plaza Hotel. And, um, and uh, people can go to Seven, uh, let's see, I should have had that up here and ready to go. And I Will it sorry. be on your website? It is on my website. Okay, if you go to the Nora Live part of my website, uh, right. you, can, you can scroll down and find, and find that one-day seminar. And uh, I encourage everybody to look into that. It's going to be basically based on a lot of what we've been talking about. Very good. Time is completely out. L- listen, I loved having you on. There's so much to talk about. I know how fast an hour goes, but we'll just have to stay connected and... Uh, and all the success to you in the future. I'll be certainly contacting you myself. Again, thank you, Nora, so much for joining me. You're so me. very welcome, and thank you so much for having me. And by the way, it's sevenwaveswellness.com. Very good. Okay. Thank you, Nora. I'll talk to you later. Thank you, Catherine. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, listeners, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Lots of information there. And we'll look forward to talking to you tomorrow on the Wellness Roadshow at 2 o'clock. Bye-bye for now.